0: This is Missing Persons Uncovered, where we uncover the depth and complexities of a global pandemic. Every year, millions of people go missing worldwide. I'm Karen Shalev-Green, a specialist researcher in the subject of missing persons at the University of Portsmouth, UK. And I'm Caroline Humer, a global child
1: protection expert. Across this series, we hope to raise awareness of this issue, discuss how societies can support vulnerable people better, and give you insights
0: into how you can protect your community and family. In this episode, we explore the world of search and rescue, both in terms of protecting individuals and helping with the aftermath of a large-scale event, such as a natural disaster. Dr.
1: Craig Colley combines the world of research with hands-on practical work
2: as a search and rescue volunteer. That's where my academic hat and my professional hat sort of conflict a little bit. Because when you're out searching, it's different than when you're taking a step back and looking at it with that kind of bigger picture.
1: Greg took an interest in search and rescue when he was a teenager after a practice drill at a summer camp in the US made him consider how it would feel for a family and or friends of a missing person. He talked to Karen about the challenges the teams he works with face, the range of events that can present themselves and advice for the public should you ever see a search and rescue operation taking place. Greg has something of a dual journey in research and in academia, and it was his academic side that actually brought him to Karen's door. He explains a little about how that
2: happened. So you might be able to tell from my accent, I'm originally Scottish and our department is based in Portsmouth, so a little bit of a distance. So I travelled down to be part of Karen's, what was then known as the Centre for the Study of Missing Persons, and that was all awesome. And I studied my PhD doing that on quite a specific topic to do with child abduction, not to do with search and rescue specifically. But having finished that, I was able to branch out and search and rescue is something that I'm very, very interested in. That partly stemmed from as while I was studying the PhD, I started to volunteer for a local charity, which is called Hampshire Search and Rescue. And I've been doing that since... 2015, over a year after I started the PhD. And it's a, a group of local volunteers. But it's quite organised in terms of the training that's provided and then what happens. So ultimately, I became qualified to be a, a, they call them a search technician. So that's the lingo. But basically, that means someone that's qualified to go out and look for missing people. Now, I absolutely love it. It's a really good team. The people involved in it are all brilliant. They're all passionate they really care about missing people. They really care about what they're doing. And Naria, one of them, gets paid a penny. It's all volunteers. But they, we do work with the police. So it's been wonderful for me. I get to go and do it. I get to you know, walk the walk, so to speak, in addition to talking the talk. I get a first-hand look at the police dealing with missing people, the charity dealing with missing people. And that has helped inform the, the research that I've been doing academically. I do like theory and that kind of thing, but I also like for things to be applied and be real and feel real. And I think it adds a bit of legitimacy to what I'm doing and that I understand what people are going through. And I'm pleased to say there are more and more people that are from the search and rescue world who are starting to do research and apply that knowledge as well.
0: So I thought... We can divide this, this session to talk about two types of missing that even though we're exposed to it, but we don't necessarily think about it. And one side of it is the day-to-day disappearances that a lot of our sessions are focused on. People go out, they leave, home in the morning, something happens, they don't come back. For whatever reason. Then we have the large-scale events.
2: Do you want to define what that means? Well. It's an interesting question. At large scale can mean a couple of things, I guess. It could mean that there are lots of people who are missing, but it could also mean there's not very many people or even just a single person, but there's a large scale effort is required to find and rescue that individual. I guess the kind of benchmark for a large scale event where there's lots of people missing would tend to be something like a natural disaster. So the earthquakes in Christchurch, Those are kind of classic examples. By contrast, an individual case would be, let's say there's a young child has gone wandering off into the hills or something, and there might be concern that they've been taken. We might not know if they've just gotten lost and gone for an adventure on their own. Typically, that's going to attract rather a large response. There'll be police, there'll be helicopters, that kind of thing. They're coming out. You could also get something like maybe someone's gotten stuck inside a structure. That is a very technical, difficult rescue. And that could be an example of that. They're all quite complicated and they all require pretty different levels of response. When people think
1: of searches of a missing person, quite often they imagine helicopters, sniffer dogs and more. But that often isn't the case. Craig explains why.
2: The police are typically the lead agency when someone goes missing. There are minor exceptions to that where a Coast Guard might be in charge, for example. But the police will make an assessment. They'll do a risk assessment. They'll determine how much danger is this person in. how concerned are we about their welfare. And that determination is linked to the level of response that they are able to provide. And it's only at a certain level that they're able to even ask for search and rescue resources. To be called out is the term, a call-out would happen. If it's this sort of high-risk case, they can, they don't always call upon various other resources, but those things come with a cost. They're not going to call out a helicopter, for example, if they think that someone is in an indoor location that's not going to make a lot of sense. They aren't going to call out sniffer dogs if they think the person is in a certain type of environment where sniffer dogs aren't particularly useful and so on. In terms of the type of case and why one person would get this resource and someone else wouldn't, again, it kind of links to how worried the police are about this individual and what's happened to them. This is different, again, if they're, someone's lost up in the mountains. So I guess there's another distinction, and that is people who are missing. We use the umbrella term missing, but there are also people who are lost and want to be found. And that would be more your your people who are going up mountaineering. A fog's come down and they don't know where they are anymore. They've gotten lost. We see lots of cases where people have they just had an accident. They've fallen off something. It could be that they've gone out not anticipating how difficult mountaineering would be. In those cases, that's when you send up teams of mountaineers, mountain search and rescue, who have the correct training, ropes, uh, particular equipment. But even then, a helicopter might not be appropriate.
0: You mentioned before the volunteers and police. So who does what and how does that relationship
2: work? Actually, (laughs) there's another complication. Again, there are some sort of non-official search and rescue organisations that sort of do go out unsanctioned, as it were, to look for people. But they don't exist under the UK SAR strategy for looking for missing people. You can think of it as a framework. I understand they don't like calling it a framework because it's not rigid as such, but it determines which organisations can be officially asked by the police, the government essentially, to go and look for people. And Lowland Search and Rescue and Mountain Rescue, and those organisations are part of that. So they can never those official organizations, they can never self-deploy. They can never say a report in the news, for example, old Jean's gone missing from the care home. We'll get a van over there and go and look for her. They can't do that. They have to wait for the police to ask them. And that is done via someone who is called a police search advisor or a POLSA as they're typically known. They'll actually do all sorts of types of search activity. It's not just for a missing person. They're trained to search for all sorts of stuff like bombs and other cool stuff like that. They get to do all sorts of interesting training. Tend to be pretty interesting characters, pulses. And they ask search and rescue to get involved. And they will liaise. So to use the example of the type of search and rescue I'm involved in, we'll have people in the search and rescue organisation that would manage the search from our Perspective. They are rather creatively known as search managers, and they will work with the POLSA to determine where we should search, what areas to prioritise, how many people we need, and how best to use the resources available.
1: Whilst different countries have different cultures and policies, there are similar threads to the process they use when a person goes missing and a report has been made to the police. Greg says if the case is viewed as a high risk and deserves a strong search response, the local search and
2: rescue volunteers are often brought swiftly into action. So let's say the police don't have a resource but another organization does, or another police force does, they can start to draw on other arrangements such as mutual aid, which is essentially a way to share resources. But let's focus on search and rescue. What will happen then is they will get in touch with the local search and rescue organization. They'll have someone on call. So right now in Hampshire, where we are, there is someone on call who, if someone goes missing right now, they'll get a message from the police. They will then make some preliminary arrangements. They'll work out, right, where are we going? What is the kind of general search area going to be? And they'll think about, right, where are we going to send our teams? So they send a text message out to everyone who is in Hampshire that is a signed up uh, search and rescue person that says, please come and look for this missing person. And then everyone in the team has to reply saying, yes, I can come. I can't come right now, but I'll be there at this time or no, I can't come. So that means they can measure how big a response are we going to get. And if need be, will we call on neighbouring counties to come and help? Then all this requires some management and support so there are vehicles that get sent out that are essentially mobile bases a van with like computers in it and things will be sent and we call that the rv (laughs) the rendezvous point or the instant control vehicle is the more official name for it and it's got all the equipment in it that we might need although individual searchers have their own equipment in their cars this typically takes a little while to mobilize At that point, because there's a little bit of a delay, the search managers had time. They've sorted out, right, these five people are going to be in a team with this team leader. These five people are going to be in a team with this team leader. So when they arrive, they get a briefing and they're sent out and they're asked to search that area. It then sort of gets devolved to that team and the team leader in particular to think, how are they going to cover that area? And there are all sorts of techniques that they might use to do that.
0: I would be really interested in knowing how do you know where to search if somebody goes missing, let's say in my road where I live. It's suburban. It's a very, very densely populated area.
2: So how do you know where to even look for someone here? It's partly guided by intelligence. And it tends to work best when you draw on both of those things. Basically, some clever clogs have done studies where they've looked at lots of incidents, lots of search and rescue incidents or missing persons incidents, and they've managed to work out patterns like how far did they typically go from their home address? And they can break that down by type. So, let's say the person had depression. Typically, they'll go this distance, whereas someone who had dementia will typically go this distance. They might be found in these sorts of places. And that helps you prioritize the kind of places to look. Some of that is pretty straightforward, I would say, in terms of how they work it out, basically is they might be within this distance from the home, therefore draw a circle around the home and search as much of that as you can. But they do target it more and they form what we call search areas. And that will partly just be common sense, looking at a map and saying, well, there's this wooded area that they could be in that's in this radius around their home, we should search that these streets are there we'll have people walk up and down those streets and look in gardens if that makes sense with permission of course we we try to be as careful as we can people will look, be looking underneath cars and all that sort of thing just to cover all the bases even though they're not particularly likely to be found in some of those places
1: so does the approach to the search change depending on the individual is the approach different if the person is autistic compared to someone with dementia
2: the overall approach to searching is the same no matter who you're looking for really but with someone who has let's say mental health issues that's where it helps to know a bit more about the person like so what kind of thing is going on with that person if we're being really careful it's are they dangerous to themselves to other people and that means you might have to approach with a little bit of caution it's quite tricky sometimes approaching someone we use the term despondent in search and rescue And that doesn't always mean that the person is suicidal, but it means that there's a concern that the person might hurt themselves. They're in a bad place. Often they're just going off to get a bit of space, but we're worried about what they might do. Approaching that sort of person requires quite a bit of tact. When you find them, you don't necessarily want to be making a huge fuss. At the end of the day, search and rescue are not police. You're not there to arrest anybody. If they want to stay missing or stay away, You can encourage them to come back and explain the situation, but if they want to stay where they are, that is up to them. The police might decide they want to step in at that point if the person needs a bit more support and that they want to verify their well-being. That'll be quite different if the person has, let's say, dementia. Typically, they haven't willingly gone missing. They have more gotten misplaced. There are various terms around this. The leading term at the minute is that they're purposely wandering. They may have had a short-term memory lapse and think, that they're going off to work or something like that. In that situation, you're trying to ideally have them come back with you to the rendezvous point or keep them nice and comfortable where they are and the ambulance and the police will come to you and help them in that regard. But but because of what we know about some of these groups, we know they might have different needs when we find them. So with dementia, classically, they might not be wearing the appropriate clothing. Because of the way dementia works, people with dementia often take their shoes off it increases the sensitivity that they then have in their feet so they can feel more. There's a bit of a myth around people with dementia that they can never walk far, but then we find they've walked miles and sometimes that's because they've taken their shoes off or they've just decided today's the day.
0: From your experience, both academically and professionally, as a volunteer, what are the key challenges to
2: search and rescue? That's where my academic hat and my professional hat sort of conflict a little bit because when you're out searching, it's different than when you're taking a step back and looking at it with that kind of bigger picture. When you're out searching, there are lots of things going on, but the challenges are around that kind of just getting there, making sure it's all going as planned. One of the things that can be a little difficult is managing the public's expectations about what can be achieved and about what we're doing. So as mentioned, there sometimes is a little bit of downtime in a search where there's planning going on. And it doesn't necessarily then make sense. Often we're asked to congregate in a car park because there's parking for everyone that have driven to the place. And there may be a, a short time where the teams are waiting to be given instructions. And it doesn't make sense to just have them randomly look around. But sometimes the public thinks, well, what are they doing? They're just standing there, get out there and do something. So for that reason, we do try and get out as quickly as possible, but also use the resources meaningfully. Something that we see, and this is where my research hat goes back on a bit, we, we did do a study about what kind of things people stop doing search and rescue for are. One of the main things is you feel a bit guilty often as someone who can search if there is a call and you can't go. You then maybe start to compare yourself to, oh, this other person, they go all the time and I, I've only gone to one or two recently. There is a little bit of pressure applied by the organization because there is an expectation that you will attend a certain number of things. There's a really, really interesting study about search and rescue culture and that you're never allowed to call yourself a hero in the search and rescue literature. That is a big taboo. It's a label that the team, once you've done enough, you've shown that you're committed, that they kind of apply to the members. But there's an expected level of humility within the search and rescue community, which I've always found quite interesting.
1: And when a loved one goes missing, the helplessness for the family can be horrendous. Karen asked Greg what role families can and should have in that process.
2: The family do often want to be involved in the search and they're often present at the rendezvous point. Now that's quite a big challenge Search and rescue, some of the language uh, is in, in a kind of policing circle, emergency response circle, so the language used can be quite direct and externally it could maybe even look unsympathetic. It's not, uh, I would stress, it absolutely is not. But, for example, the person is sort of depersonalised, they They're called the MISPR, shorthand for missing person, and a family member hearing that may not like it. The other thing that is a big risk for the family and the search team is that if the person is found and it's not a good outcome that they've, they've been found deceased which sadly does happen that is something that we try and transmit quietly wherever possible the radios can be quite loud and you don't want to have over the radio we, we, we've found a body and the family standing 10 feet away that's horrible so we have to really really carefully manage that sort of thing
0: can the police or does the police sometimes tell Families don't go to this area because we're focusing there because obviously there's an element of possible contamination or forensic in case there's uh,
2: a concern of a crime. I'm not aware of the police outright saying you cannot go here. They may well do behind the scenes, but they certainly do, as you suggest, there of trying to direct community efforts, family efforts away. Anecdotally, I have seen some searches where there have been quite a large public interest in going to look in a certain area. But it's been such a large response, it would essentially disrupt the official search and rescue effort. And having lots of people out and about can actually make some of our resources less effective. If someone goes missing in a wood, a woodland is somewhere where there wouldn't be many people walking around. So a scent's going to stand out and the dog's a really good resource. If you've just had 100 people wander through it, The dogs now useless. They might even be detrimental because they're going to follow the wrong scent at that point.
1: Let's take large scale events now. A tornado or earthquake could combine huge damage with large numbers of missing persons. If you were to lose contact with a loved one in that scenario, what processes will be
2: put in place? So typically, the most countries in the world have an equivalent of an emergency action plan that they need to basically try and plan for every single possible event. So civil contingencies is the lingo we would use in the UK, but every country pretty much will have something like this. So let's imagine you've got a collapsed building or something like that. This is tending to be happening in a bigger context there's usually lots of things that are going on alongside that so you need to manage all your resources so but in the short term when it's still a unfolding thing you're just looking for people and trying to rescue them you're expecting people to be alive or you're planning as though people are alive and need to be recovered so with a collapsed building there's all sorts of things you need to worry about what if it collapses further while you're there and traps more people there is going to be rubble. How do you move that out of the way? If it's been in an active city, are there live wires? Is there a gas leak? Is there flammable stuff around? So it's all these sorts of dangerous things you need to think about. You might even need to think about how are we are going to stabilize the building so it goes beyond search and rescue almost immediately into structural engineering and that kind of thing. Then you're going to start thinking, right, how are we going to get in there? You've got the building stabilized, let's say, and you're, you're less concerned now that it's going to collapse it might be too difficult to get in. It might not be enough space. So then you start to think, drones, can we get some of the robots in there to have a look and see if anyone's there? Drones have been a really good development for search and rescue and they allow us to do a lot of things, but they are pretty heavily regulated for various reasons. They can lead to some issues if they end up flying in the wrong place and so on. And like all of the things that I've been talking about today, there's the right tool for the right job. So if you do have a collapsed building, say an aerial drone that is looking down on the building, it's maybe not that useful because the people are underneath the thing that's there. That's when you start to use the there's some robots that can go into buildings. And the technology on that's developing all the time. They've now got robots that are like you kind know, of little snakes that can go into cracks. And they're incredible because they really reduce the risk that people are putting themselves into to get into a building. On top of all this, when you get a large-scale response, you've got effectively an army of people. You've got to feed them. You've got to provide power. The first thing that goes typically in a big disaster is power. So you need to bring in the internet again. You need to have generators. It can all be very challenging. One of the things we see there that is a bit of an issue that I, I touched on a little bit earlier when we talked about more local search and rescue is what the public expects. They see the helicopters come in. They see the search and rescue guys turn up and they think, that's it, it's solved. These guys are going to save the day immediately. Often it's longer term. A search operation, a rescue operation might take a while and the resources are limited. So one of the things that we sort of struggle with is this public expectations of search and rescue and what they can achieve. And what we've kind of seen is if the search and rescue people turn up and it's not some kind of magical resolution, the public's trust in them and the future is then kind of damaged. So something that's been worked on quite a lot in the emergency response sector is trying to think about the community's understanding of what search and rescue does. And then on top of that, like the community resilience. So what can we teach people? What can they expect if there is a disaster? What can they do? How can they stay safe? You don't want them charging into buildings either. So a lot of it at the minute is about outreach and education. You touched on public expectation. And what would you
0: say are the main things for our listeners to be mindful of, just to take away and expect, I guess, more realistically about search and rescue?
2: I guess the big thing I would say is that whatever you're seeing happening, whatever you're seeing the search and rescue groups doing, they are doing something and there's a reason for what they're doing. So, do bear with them. If they're in the middle of an operation and you go up and ask them what's going on, they're focused on the task. So, they might not necessarily have time to stand and explain to the public what's going on. So, if you do see a search and rescue operation ongoing, give it space and allow them to work. Be mindful that a lot of search and rescue operations, the person is not found right away and they're often found in a different place than where the search was happening. As things develop, every moment someone's missing is a bigger area that might need to be searched.
0: When we did a study about people missing with dementia, one of the things that came up was that, first of all, people prefer to make their own searches. So people will call or have a look around. Does that affect then the ability to search? And at one point, should people then make the call to report to police?
2: I would say as soon as you're concerned, tell the police. It's never too soon to get in touch. However, there are actions that you can take if you think someone is missing that will help. So do try and call them in the first instance. If you can get a hold of them and work out that they're fine, then that's brilliant. If there's any particularly obvious places that they would go that is not going to be a risk to you to go and search so... Let's say they might they go and visit the neighbor quite often, check to see if they're there, call their best friend, call the pub if they've got a local, that kind of thing. Those small measures can really help prevent there being a bigger response when one isn't needed. But the no one's going to be angry if you make the call and it turns out that they were safe. People are just going to be relieved. It's better to call and they're safe, they not call they're not be safe.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. It's been really informative and helpful, and I hope it's useful to the listeners of Missing Persons Uncovered. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Missing Persons Uncovered. We hope you join us next
0: time. If you'd like to find out more about our work or any resources we mention in the show, you can go to missingpersonsuncovered.com But if you'd like specific information or need help, please reach out to your local police department or national charity. I'm Karen Shalev-Green. And I'm Caroline
1: Humer. Thanks you for listening to Missing Persons Uncovered. We'll speak again next time.
0: This episode was brought to you by the University of Portsmouth. You can find out more about how their research is changing our world for the better and supporting projects like this at port.ac.uk slash research.